Um, If you would, turn with me to the Gospel according to Matthew, uh, chapter 2. The Gospel according to Matthew and chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 12 verses here. Uh, Maybe you visited these verses when you read to your family the Christmas story. But if you bypass them, uh, hear them afresh and anew on this last day of of Christmas tide. We are, again, um, still in in the season of, of Christmas, this last Sunday. Then we'll move to Epiphany. Notice these words from Matthew here concerning Jesus' early life. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream... Not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Let us pray. Jesus, we thank You so much for Your Word. It is life to us. It is bread for us to eat and feed on in our hearts. And so Lord, would You feed us from Your table today and make us full with joy and laughter and rejoicing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the twelfth day of Christmas. You just thought it was some corny song, right? The twelve days of Christmas. I had the tune in my head all morning. Um, But this is the twelfth day of Christmas. Today is the fifth, and the sixth will be the Epiphany, which is where we celebrate the Magi, these kings coming to worship Jesus. Now the significance is very straightforward, and that is these were pagans. These were... People who were outside of the covenant community, they did not have the promises. Hence the reason they inquired, who is this king of the Jews? And where would we find him? Now they may have a little bit of scripture, we're not told. But they didn't have the full range of the Old Testament. We know that. Because they had to inquire of others where he would be born. And they're following, interestingly, 
a star. (laughs) Which is really fascinating because you know that most pagan witchcraft stuff is based on the stars. And here, the stars are actually pointing to the light of the world. (laughs) It's quite fascinating here what we celebrate and what tomorrow really holds for us in Epiphany. Um, But today is this last uh, of the Christmas time that we celebrate the nativity of Jesus, His coming into our world and the scene at His beginning years. And so I want to look kind of just with you today at four scenes of His early life. I mean, we normally, and quite frankly, the, the Gospel writers more focus on those three years when He's 30 to 33. Um, but I want to look at the little blips that we have of when He was a child, all the way up to 12. Alright, so, so I'm going to carry us through four different scenes here. And, and really, I think this is helpful uh, to have to still be celebrating Christmas on into the new year because after all the lights have gone and all, after all the luster, you know, now we can look at the Lord. Without all the presents and all the, the hustle and bustle, we can now slow down and still remember Jesus because He is still the reason for this season. Um, and so that's what I want to do with you this morning. And I want to draw a couple conclusions from, from what it is that we learn. Interestingly, when you're doing a study of any world religion, you always focus on its founder, right? So if, if I'm teaching Islam and world religions, which I do, uh, then we're going to look at the early life of Muhammad and how tumultuous it was. So too, with any religion you want to cover, if there is a founder to that religion, then you want to look at his early life because that really shapes a person. You know that. Not just from psychology you know that, but you know it from your own life. How much those early years form you and make you. And so let's look at Jesus' early life. I mean, He is the founder of our faith. He is the founder of the largest religion in the entire world, which is Christianity. The first scene I want to look at is actually when they finally get to Bethlehem. There's no room. There's no room for them. This has been made famous, this little saying, there's no room in the end. And yet, the application is very clear to us. One doesn't have to study long to see that. The application is that, is there room in us for God? I mean, if we're the place of His dwelling now, if no longer He doesn't live in tents, like the tabernacle used to be in the Old Testament, or in temples made of stone. Remember what Jesus says, each one of these stones will be put down one day. And they're saying, what are you talking about? I mean, you have to realize that the temple, when Jesus said that, actually Herod, the same guy who's trying to kill, who actually kills all the babies, he's the one who built up the Jerusalem temple to be one of the wonders of the world in the ancient world. He pumped a lot of money in it to make it a wonder of the world. Much like Bryant-Denny Stadium. It's like going there and saying... Yeah, you see all this? It'll be down on the ground, leveled, raised. And this is exactly what happens later on. In 70 A.D., the temple is completely burned to the ground. Again! You remember it was burned to the ground in in 586 with Nebuchadnezzar. But here again, for the second time now, the temple is completely destroyed. I think there's a message here. God takes away all our little things that we want to make into idols. 
and leaves us just with Himself. You ever notice how that happens in Scripture? Notice the Ark of the Covenant, right? Indiana Jones? I mean, Jeremiah, right? No. (laughs) The Ark of the Covenant is this thing that has these sacred items in it, right? And it represents really the presence of God among them. It's placed in the very center of the camp and they encircle it. And in the ancient world, that's the way they used to do a king. The king would stay in the center and everybody else would circle around him when they were traveling. So, so the very presence of God is represented in this Ark of the Covenant. And so they say, okay, we get it. The Ark of the Covenant is God. Therefore, if we take God into battle, we won't lose. So let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle. That way we can win. And God says, yeah, I'm not in the box. <laughs> and He lets them lose it. And it's been lost forever. We've never seen it again. And I dare say, you'll never see it. Why? Because they made it idolatrous and God took it away. They did the same thing with the temple later on. They, Solomon builds this majestic, t- I mean, world-class wonder of the world in the ancient world. Temple for God. And they say to themselves, when other nations such as Assyria and Babylonia are knocking at their door, breathing down their neck, they say to themselves, look, we have the temple. The northern kingdom, the reason they got destroyed by the Assyrians is because they don't have God's temple. They were a bunch of pagans anyway. Just like the north, right? Opposite south. The southern kingdom, northern kingdom. The same thing going on in Israel. There's a bunch of pagans up there. We're the good ones down here. We're the Bible Belt. And so we have God on our side. We have God and we have His temple. God would never get rid of His house. I mean, that'd be dumb, wouldn't it? To burn your own house down? How stupid would that be? And God says, no. You've made my house idolatrous. There's no room for me even in that inn. It's leveled by Nebuchadnezzar. They lose it. They lose the kingship. They lose their land. Their sacred, holy land. God takes it away. Because God is a Father. And He sees the things that lead us astray, and just like any good father would do, He takes those things out. I don't draw the wrong conclusions about that. Because He's always a perfect and good Father. But things that we make idolatrous, some of us have made our work for God idolatrous. I've done that before in my own Christian life. Look at all the good things I've done for you, God. That's enough to get me in heaven, right? But is heaven the goal? Jesus is our goal. And what the Bible says is we can have Him now. We can have Him now. We don't have to wait to heaven. We can have Him now in our hearts. Operating in our lives. We can make room for God. That's crazy. It's crazy good. So, Jesus comes and tabernacles with us in the flesh so that He can tabernacle in us. He comes with us. He becomes one of us so that He can live in us. And I hope that at the end of Christmas, the twelfth day of Christmas, that He has really found room in your tabernacle.
It's His anyway. It's like barring the door of a place that He owns. But we've filled our lives, have we not, with many, many other things that really are junk. They really don't last. And we just keep pumping it through there. And what we're doing is trying to grasp onto sand, the Bible says. And the harder you grasp for it, the more comes out. The more you lose. And the less you end up with in your hand. But if we build on the right foundation, as we saw last week, the cornerstone Himself, remember Ichthus, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior, if we build on the cornerstone, as it says in Ephesians, we will have something that lasts. Who is Jesus Christ? The other scene I want to move to is the actual nativity scene where Jesus is born. (laughs) And I'm just sitting this morning, I guess it was 6.45 or so or 7, holding Ty, my little nine-month-old. Any nine-month-old? Almost nine-month-old. And he's just looking up at me and, you know, he's playing and he's learning to wave and he's trying to control his hands, you know, and he's doing this number. He's trying to, he's, he's, you know, shaking as he's standing up and he's trying to learn to cruise around the furniture. I'm just thinking, God had to learn to walk. God had to learn to say, Mama. Which Ty's now saying, Mama, Mama, Mama. And as Mary looks into that precious face, you know, I mean, There's really no ugly baby face. really isn't. When you look at their eyes, they're precious. Every one of them. She looks into those eyes. That's God in the flesh learning to walk. Learning to talk. And yet, He holds the whole world together. (laughs) Every atom in this world is connected directly to Him because He is the Creator. Ty does say hey. Jesus had to learn to say hey. And He says hey to you. (laughs) Um, And when Jesus was born, He was born into what most people and scholars believe was a cave. Was a cave. A dark... And if you look on the front of your bulletin, this is exactly what's depicted in the icon of the nativity. Is He was born in a dark cave. He slipped in at night. It wasn't in the paper the next morning. God is born! (laughs) It wasn't in the paper. It wasn't on CNN News or on Fox. wasn't running down in the headlines, AP. He just slipped into our world that night very quietly and was born in the dark streets of Bethlehem. But He was the light of the world. And through that, (laughs) if you will, incognito kind of approach to coming into our world, He makes light in our caves, in our dark places. I mean, He was born in a, in a stable. And typically the house was built above it, and, and the stable was built right into the rock formation. And the animals at night would come in to keep the upstairs warm. And this is where He's, he's, he's at the bottom rung here. He's not born into a palace. Instead, He's born in a stable, in a cave. And yet He's the light of the world and the King of all kings, the High King of heaven. He created every single animal that was there that night. Just imagine those animals. There's the cow, who we don't know how much cognition they have of God or not, 
But the very Creator, they're looking at the Creator. The star is pointing to the Creator. The angels come and tell the shepherds to come in that night. So you have shepherds who are, who are some of the, the scum of the earth in the ancient world. It was not a good profession to be in. And yet they're invited to see the King. They're some of the first ones to actually worship Jesus and rejoice. And so, this star shines, as we just have read, and gives light to where He is born. Because even light points to Him. Because He is the true light. As we read in John, He's the true light that enters into the world that expels the darkness. Let me ask you, there are caves in here in my life. And there are caves in your life. There's places that are closed quarters to everybody else. I don't know what it is. Your spouse may not know what it is. Your best friend may not know. But you know. God knows. He wants to bring light to those dark places. He wants to bring His light to expel the darkness and turn it around. He can do that in our hearts. He can save us from our sin (laughs) by tabernacling with us now, the third scene I want to move to is the Magi, who we've read about here. These were kings from the east, maybe even as far as India. They may have been Hindu. I mean, they like the stars. Many of their gods are named after some of the stars. They worship, well, there's really 350 million plus gods that they worship, so there's really not many that, that are going to be missed. Uh, quite frankly. These were kings, these were rich guys who traveled in huge convoys and they traveled probably, some have estimated, for over a year to find Jesus. If you'll notice, the Bible doesn't give us uh, all the details that we always like, but apparently, best we can tell, Jesus was two years old. He's actually sitting in his mother's lap when they get there. He is a child now, not just an infant. And so they have probably, they saw the star maybe even far back as two years ago. That's why when it says they saw it again, they said, whoa, they're rejoicing because they haven't seen it in two years. They saw it, mapped it out, because again, these guys are astrologers, and now they've traveled far to get here. They're pagan. They don't have the promises of God. They're not the elect community, and yet they find themselves right there at Jesus' feet, as a two-year-old worshiping Him. Can you imagine bowing as a king from the east, from India? These Indians, they're bowing before a two-year-old Jew. What a powerful scene that is. What does that scene say to us? It says that this is the first time the Gentiles heard the Gospel. Now, Paul, remember, was commissioned directly to the Gentiles. you remember this? But before the gospel begins to spread with Paul to the Gentiles, here's Jesus as a toddler essentially preaching the good news of the gospel because guess what the gospel is? Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is God's good news. And so, (laughs) the significance of this event tomorrow, Epiphany, means the appearing of Jesus to the Gentiles. Now, I don't think there's any Jews among us. There may be. 
That means we're all Gentiles. That means we're all connected to this event we just read about. These magi making that long journey. Let me ask you this. How far would you travel to see Jesus? To be where Jesus is. To do what Jesus wants. Maybe He wants you on a mission trip 4,000 miles away. Maybe He's going to ask you to pack up and load up and move out. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to travel like these guys to come and just worship Him? What are you willing to do to be with Jesus? That's the real question. We, I mean, you know, some of you have really stretched yourselves at times to go to football games. Or, or maybe to make a certain purchase of a truck or a house. Or the, you, you've really stre- been over backwards to do certain, maybe, you know, European trip or something. What about Jesus? What would you do to get to Him? What would you do to be at peace with Him? Be reconciled, come and worship Him. Some of us won't even make a five-mile effort. It's really interesting, isn't it? How lazy we are and how we actually prioritize our lives sometimes. I'm talking to myself. If you think I'm preaching to you, I'm talking to myself. You're just overhearing it. Jesus was worshipped by the Gentiles. Right here in our text today, the Magi. They're the first ones. They're pagan. They're reading the stars of all things, which is a pagan practice. And the stars are pointing to God. Why? Because everything in His creation points to Him. All the way down to an atom. Ever wondered why there might be three parts to an atom? You take one part out, the atom doesn't work. It's a type of holy trinity at the very basic building block of life. Why? Because God created all things and all things point together. All things hold together in that little toddler that they're worshiping. What an amazing story. That is our good news. That's shocking good news. And it's for us. They also bring Christ's gifts. Every one of us should never come to church empty-handed. And I don't mean just with physical gifts. I mean bringing your spiritual gifts to our worship service. 52 times a year. Sound like a, sound like a salesman, right? 52 times a year. That's all you got to be. You know. We get to come in here, worship God, and serve one another. Church is not just about... Me getting something, you know, you people always say, "Man, I didn't really get any, get much from today." Well, hey, that's your fault. I mean, of course, the preaching may have been bad, but but that's your fault because guess what? God is here. Amen. He's here no matter how good of a job I do, or how many chords they miss, or how many t- how many things we mess up in our reading or reciting. God is here. He is present. If you miss Him, that's on you. The Holy Spirit should be in here. I'm not the dispenser of the Holy Spirit. God forbid. That's why we must come to church prepared. They're going to take, take preparation. These guys prepared to meet Jesus. Their journey was long. That's why they were rejoicing when they finally found Him. They were pumped. And sometimes, I don't prepare enough. My heart on Sunday morning. Which is why I may leave and say, ah, I'm not sure about that, you know. Didn't really get much out of that. Look, the more you prepare for something, I promise you, the better your experience is going to be. That goes in the academic world. 
to the business world, to the church world. It's a principle of life. When you prepare for something, you get more out of it. You've, put, you've invested more. What have you invested in Jesus? Anything? Or you just throw it up at Him, you know. Throw our prayers up, just kind of haphazardly walk into His presence. All right, feed me. Come on. I got to, all right, let's go. Time-wise. You know, that's one way to do it. I'm just saying, I think there's a little more. These guys really invested a lot to get to Jesus. I want to learn from that this year. I'm talking to myself again. I, I want to learn. Marshall wants to learn from that this year. And the last story is, it's kind of a comical story where Jesus is forgotten. He's 12 years old. We only have this one story and from one of the Gospels where Jesus is actually left behind in Jerusalem. They, they go for Passover, as was the custom every year, and they assumed that Jesus was with the larger crowd that they traveled with. That, you know, they didn't go in, in, in cars. It wasn't just a four-man crew or three-man crew. It was lots of people because where numbers were, it kept the thieves away. So they traveled in large groups when they went out. And they just assumed, oh, yeah, Jesus is playing with his cousins. No, he wasn't. Instead, he was in his father's house. They look around after two or three days and say, Hey, where's Jesus? Hadn't seen him in a while. Oh boy, we forgot him. What kind of mother am I? You know. <laughs> and they go back, frantically looking for him, and he's in there in the temple in Jerusalem, actually asking questions and talking with the religious leaders. And they're amazed at his knowledge and understanding. Because he had been learning. Been learning the scriptures even at twelve years old. That challenges me to make sure that I'm teaching my children. I mean, you just think it's automatic? No, it's not automatic. Most of the time, I want to just put them in the bed and get them quiet. <laughs> I want to spend the next 15 minutes reading to them and trying to teach them to pray. So I want to be quiet. <laughs> quiet is not something that has had much at our house until after 10. No. You know, we must learn and we must teach our children to learn. And every one of these children are impressionable, just like Jesus was. And here, Jesus is forgotten because we assumed He was with someone else. I don't want to assume my kids are just going to get it. I don't want to assume that you're just going to get it. I don't want to assume that my wife understands how appreciated she is. Because I do that. I just... Oh yeah, she, she understands how I feel about all the stuff she does waking up with Ty and taking care of him on all those... No... We need to be told. We need to make sure in 2014 people hear us. We need to make sure that we don't forget Jesus. Some of His last words, were they not at the Last Supper? Remember me. Why would He say that? Because we have a tendency of forgetting. We sleep and there's a restart button. We must remind ourselves of who we are, who our founder is, how important he is, and what he's come to do in our lives. I need to remember that. I do. Is there any room for Jesus in your life? If not, make some. That's what Lent's going to be all about. But start now. <laughs> Lent is a spring cleaning. But start now. There must be room in here. There must be space in our life for God.
Carve out that time. Keep it sacred. Have we allowed some areas in our life to become really dark? Habits? Attitudes? He can light those areas. He can help you. He's the only one who can. He is the only one who can. Do we look for God in all the things? If we do, He's going to take them away. They become idolatrous. As a good father, He'll take it away. Don't do that. Don't make things your object of worship. Make Jesus. And then have we forgotten Jesus? Lastly. You say, of course I haven't forgotten Jesus. Sometimes in my Christian life, I've looked around and said, boy, I really haven't spent quality time with Christ. Just like sometimes in my marriage, I say, boy, we've been running around doing the kid thing, doing the work thing. When's Jessica and I really sat down and looked at each other and really had a face-to-face? Some of us need to stop, put the brakes on, and really have a face-to-face with Jesus. He is the center of our reality. Everything points to Him. Let's make sure our life does too. Amen.